2 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we're going to go. We, we commemorated the Lord's Supper, and as I said, it's, it's reserved for Christians, isn't it? It's, it's only for Christians because it's symbolic of the fellowship that we have with the Father. In the ancient Near East, the, the, eating a meal with someone was a sign of intimate fellowship. You didn't eat, eat meals with people that were savory in your eyes or were enemies or that sort of thing. It was intimate fellowship. We're eating a meal with Jesus. And so only those who, <clears throat> um, the only ones who have the right to do this are those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. And so think about this. To, for someone to claim to know Christ and to love Him and be in fellowship with Him, but in reality they're not, that person is in essence opening themselves up to judgment. Therefore we're called to examine ourselves and confirm that we are in the faith. Our passage of scripture is, is very short today, so if you'll stand with me, we'll read 2 Corinthians 13 and verse number 5. Paul, Paul told the Corinthians this much. He said when he closed his letter, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. So he's saying, look, Jesus Christ is in you, you have that guarantee, unless you fail the test, unless you fail the examination. And so today, we're going to take an examination. And my prayer now for the last two weeks has been that every person here will make a serious examination of their hearts and their lives. Let us pray together. Lord, as we embark on a, an examination of a very serious subject, it's literally life or death in eternity. Eternity hangs in the balance of what we look at today, what we study from Scripture. I pray that right now your Holy Spirit will first of all calm our hearts Remove distractions, worldly distractions, family distractions, whatever else, Lord, that you will clear our minds and wake us up. And Lord, I pray that we will focus on the Word of God, listen to what is being said, be able to understand it and apply it to our lives and Lord, I pray that um, many of us will have the joy of, of knowing that we are in the faith. But there are always, according to Christ, many who are not, who are indistinguishable from the ones that are. I pray that today they will see where they lack, that you'll open their eyes, open their ears, help their mind to understand what is being said, what Scripture says, and that it will be their salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You know, we look at this, and if you remember, just not too long ago, we went through 1 Corinthians. 
And so when you see Paul look at them and say, examine yourselves, there can be a tendency to say, yeah, but that's Corinth. We all know about Corinth, don't we? None of us live like the people in Corinth, do we? Uh, they had so many problems. This is Providence Bible Church. We don't have any problems. Yeah, this is true that that church did have problems, but all, all Christians are called to be careful to see if they're in the kingdom. First Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter number 1, Peter wrote to Christians and he said, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here Paul is challenging them to be diligent to make sure they are believers. And the, the people that, um, did I say Paul? I think I did. I meant Peter. Um, uh, this group of believers is not a wealthy, secure group like the people in Corinth. They're exiled Jewish believers in Asia Minor whose lives were in danger, who, who possibly lost everything. So I seriously doubt that they were struggling with the worldliness issues that were going on in Corinth. And Peter still called them self-examination. Now why? That's the question. Why, why do we examine ourselves? Why are the members of the professing church called for, to such close self-examination? I want everyone to turn to uh, Matthew chapter number 7 with me, please. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew chapter 7 contains one of the most frightening verses in the Bible. I don't think there are verses any more frightening than these for somebody who claims to be a Christian. The Sermon on the Mount is all about salvation. It was Jesus' first public sermon, and immediately he started talking about salvation and what is true salvation, what is false salvation, what is true righteousness, what is false righteousness. And towards the end of his first public sermon, verse number 21, he says these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's very serious, isn't it? In essence, he's saying not everyone who says, Jesus is Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now listen to these words. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Tell me that's not frightening. What does Jesus say? Look at what he says. He says in verse number 21, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is. Not everyone who says Jesus is Lord is a Christian. He makes it clear that it's not the profession that matters, it's the submission that matters. Those who do God's will. But then he makes an even more shocking statement. It's not some professed believers 
he will not make it to heaven. It's not a smattering. The Bible says that it's many, many professed believers will not make it to heaven. It is a lot of people. Listen very carefully. I believe that the churches today are packed full of people who do not know Jesus Christ. They will profess Him as Savior, they will call Him Lord, and they will not see Him in eternity. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. You say, well, how do you know? Let me throw out a couple stats for you. A recent evangelical survey found that 50% of professed evangelicals don't even know what the gospel is. That's not Protestant. That's evangelical. They can't even describe the gospel. They don't know what it is. 50%. If you don't know the gospel, how can you be in Jesus Christ? Isn't that just simple logic? Another one, Barna, recent one. Barna said that 4% of evangelicals have a biblical worldview. What, what is a biblical worldview? A biblical worldview means that they look at the issues going on around them, they look at everything, and they filter it through scriptures. And they have their outlook according to scriptures. 4% of people who claim to be in Christ have an actual biblical worldview. Now, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter number 2 tells us that if we are saved, guess what we have? We have the mind of Christ. Now, would Christ have a biblical worldview? He would. So just using simple reasoning, tell, biblical reasoning tells you that if only 4% have a biblical worldview, we have a real problem going on. And so these simple observations add meat to the claim that the church is full of unbelievers, it adds meat to, the, to what Jesus said, who said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and they will not go to heaven. Now, if you go back and, and you look at Matthew 7, 21 to 23, it's clear that many people have false assurances that they're going to heaven. These, these people are firmly and confident in their, they're firmly confident in their belief that they are, in fact, going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ, and in fact, they're going to spend eternity in judgment. Now, how can someone be so confident and yet be so wrong? The answer is that their assurance of their salvation lies in the wrong criteria. It's the wrong criteria. They have a false assurance. And I want to give you the two biggest ways that people have false assurance of their salvation. There's two big ones, and they're found in these verses. In verse number 21 of Matthew chapter 7, the first one is a verbal confession. Now, listen very carefully. This is where you can misunderstand me. You have to listen to the whole sermon to catch what I'm saying here. A verbal confession. In other words, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. These are people who call Jesus Lord, who will be sent to an eternal hell. They're saying the right words. Jesus is Lord. 
These are the people who base their assurance on repeat after me. Say these words. They prayed a prayer. They signed a card. A deacon in their church said, yeah, now you're going to heaven. These people don't have spiritual life. All they can point to is a day and a time. You say, well, Jared, Romans 10, 17 says what? Confess with your mouth, right? And believe in your heart. Well, let's keep rolling through the sermon, and you've got to compare that scripture with other scriptures, right? You've got to take the whole scripture. The second biggie is the people have a salvation assurance based upon religious activity. Has anybody here cast out demons recently? Anybody heal anybody? Anybody done any mighty works? You see, their salvation is based upon religious activity. Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We have all these works. Look at all these works, Lord. These are people today, they would be the ones who go to church. They hear the sermons. They sing the songs. They go to the Bible studies and they take a class. And because they're all wrapped up in spiritual, religious activity, they think they are saved. These are the tares among the wheat that Jesus talks about. On the surface, initially, they're indistinguishable from the wheat. But God can tell the difference. Religious activity does not save you. I I, I have experienced this firsthand. It is burned into my mind. It was one of the most stunning moments of my whole pastoral career. My previous church, the leadership, we were meeting with this man. There were some issues going on. As we're meeting with him, along the way, he began to perceive that we were questioning his salvation. Even though we didn't come out and say it, he could tell. And he got upset. And he stood up and he pounded his fist on the table and he said, I want you to know, I have been going to this church since I was a child. I taught Sunday school. I was a trustee. I sang in the choir. Therefore, I am a Christian. He stormed out of the room. And one of the guys in our leadership looked at us and said, I just heard Matthew 7. It was all religious activity. Religious activity. It's not an assurance of salvation that you come here every Sunday or come to a church every Sunday. These are the two biggest groups of self-deceived people in the world. Those that point to some words that they wrote and they've never been back to church. Seriously. Or those that are saying, yeah, I'm in church. I'm involved in all these activities. I've got to be saved. Now, as I said before, these words are the conclusion to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This sermon was preached to very religious people. These people were fastidiously keeping the law. They were deeply religious and deeply committed to religion, but many of them were on the Broadway that leads to destruction. But the Sermon on the Mount is basically one long salvation message. I want you to turn back to Matthew 5 and look at uh, verse number 20 with me. 
Matthew 5.20. It says, Jesus looked at these people. The, most, the, the people they held in the highest esteem in their community were the Pharisees and the scribes. And he said this to them. He said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will what? What's the word? Never enter the kingdom of God. Now the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is to understand and realize it's all about righteousness. The leaders of Israel had developed a system that was contrary to Scripture's based upon self-righteousness generated by doing good works. The scribes and Pharisees, they were the most religious members of society based upon this system. And everyone looked at them and they said, there is no way I can attain unto scribe so-and-so, rabbi so-and-so, these Pharisees. They fasted and prayed in the temple They kept all the feasts and the offerings and almost 600 other little commands that they added to scriptures. And when Jesus told his hearers that their righteousness needed to exceed this, he was pointing to what? He was pointing to the perfect standard of righteousness that God has. His perfect righteousness. And I'll tell you this, God's standard of of righteousness is completely unattainable. No one can attain it. Jesus used this sermon to show that no one can attain such righteousness in themselves. The only true response, what's the only response when something is impossible like that? It's to throw yourself at the mercy of God, isn't it? That's what you do. That's the the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. It is then It is then, when you throw yourself at God's mercy, that the great exchange occurs. You receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ because He took on your sins. And the Bible makes it clear that those who are genuinely saved are righteous and holy. They they not only have Christ's robes of righteousness, God makes them righteous and holy. But guess what? We're still not without sin, are we? And you're saying, yeah, I know that guy over there. He's a, he's a real sinner, right? But it's true. But what, what is true about our sin? We sin with a decreasing frequency as we mature in Christ. But coinciding with that decreasing frequency of sin is, you know what? The knowledge, I am a really bad individual. The more I grow in Christ the more unworthy I see myself. And if you're in Christ, you see yourself the same way. So if I gave you some characteristics of false assurance, I want to give you some characteristics of true assurance, right? Because that's what we're here for. How do I know that I'm in Jesus Christ? We're going to stay in the Sermon on the Mount, turn all the way back to chapter 5. You're already there if you turn there. We're not going to read the Sermon on the Mount But you can see the section headings as we go through it. And if you know the stories, if you've read it, you'll understand where we're going with all this. What are the characteristics of true assurance? Number one, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, is your life testimony. Jesus calls believers what? Salt and light. Salt and light. A Christian's life is very distinct from the unsaved, isn't it? 
those around this person, they can tell that that person is different. The, the, Christian, the Christian, by the way, you shop at the same stores. You buy the same things. If you're smart, you root for the right, I mean, you root for the same teams, right? But the Christian is different. Their goals are not the same goals. They, they don't get animated by the big pay raise, by uh, the same things the people in the world get. Their, their, their eyes are focused on eternity in Jesus Christ. They're, they're like salt, which acts as a preservative in our decaying society. I was with a group of men yesterday, and we were talking about, why does the world hate us so bad? Why do they hate us? They hate us because when we stand for the things that Jesus stands for, we are standing in the way of the things that they think make them happy. Right? They are light. Christians are light. Because they show the world what true righteousness is. And when they see true righteousness and they understand they don't have it, they hate those that have it, right? And so your life testimony, dear person, is your life testimony that one. My goals are different. My ideals are different. I, I'm a different on the inside compared to the people that I'm around. Secondly, the, the second assurance that we see from the Sermon on the Mount, is your obedience. You're obedient. You are obedient. The Christian, verses 5 to 20, 21 to 26, look, look at those. It's about anger and retaliation, right? And the, the Christian doesn't desire to hurt people, retaliate. A Christian doesn't hate people. Why? Why do we not live this way? Because we have a completely different heart. The Bible is clear that, that Satan hates. Satan is angry. Satan seeks to destroy. And those that are in the world follow Satan. That's what Ephesians 2 says. They follow the same course of action. And so the Christian has a heart, pumping heart made of flesh. Right? But they also have a spiritual heart made of flesh, while the worldly man's heart is dead and stone cold and full of evil. And so we, we, we don't retaliate. Another area of obedience, verses 27 to 30, the Christian doesn't practice sexual immorality, homosexuality, or any other kind of perversion. For someone to say, I am a gay Christian, no, that's self-deception, that's what that is. You cannot identify with sin and identify with Christ at the same time. You can't say, I am a murdering Christian. Does that work? It doesn't work. You, you, if you live in consistent sexual immorality without remorse, you are not in Christ. If, you, if you're shacking up right now and then claim to be in Christ and you're doing it without remorse, that, that's not what the Bible talks about at all. If you're living with someone who's not your spouse, 
to continue doing that is to continue on the path to hell. I'm being very honest with you. This is what the Bible says. Consider, uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither who? The sexually immoral, nor idolaters or adulterers, nor men who practice sexual immorality. None, or I'm sorry, men who practice homosexuality. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. None of them are Christians. There's no such thing as a gay Christian. Ephesians 5.5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has how much inheritance in the kingdom of God? None. No inheritance. You can't practice. This can't be your way of life and be in Christ. Let me give you one more. This is the end of, end of the Bible. For, as, for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. If your life is based upon a lie and you have no respect or um, remorse, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Now tell me where there's wiggle room for gay Christian. Shacking up Christian. Is there any room in there for that? If this is your practice, the Bible says, and this is your lifestyle, you have no part in the kingdom of heaven. Harsh words, aren't they? But they're absolutely true words. In, in ver- chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, Jesus tells us that Christ purifies the speech of his converts. They speak the truth. They don't speak lies. The, the, the more we become like God, the more our speech reflects the truth, doesn't it? So, so uh, obedience. Look at chapter number 6, verses 1 to 4. We something else. A Christian worships Christ from a pure heart. In other words, we're not practicing our righteousness before men. We're, we're walking in here because we want to worship Christ because He deserves it. We're not here because, you know, if I don't show up, somebody's going to look bad down upon me. I'm coming because my wife wants me to come or any of that sort of stuff. You don't come out of duty. You come in here because you have a heart. Isn't God good? He is so good. He's so generous. I, I love the Old Testament word said, which means loving kindness, translated loving kindness and tender mercies and several other ways. There's, there's no English equivalent to that word. God is so good to us. And we see it and we read it in scriptures and we understand it and we hear it in sermons. And so the only thing that we can do is walk in here and explode with praise to Him. And we hunger for His Word because we want to learn His Word and walk out of here and praise Him even more because we hear about Him in His Word, right? And so it's pure worship. Somebody who is uh, uh, another evidence of salvation, I should say, of true assurance is they have an eternal perspective of money and possessions. 
That's chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. You either love God or money. Isn't that what Jesus says in verse 24? You either love God or money, but you can't love both. If wealth is more exciting to you than Jesus Christ, you are not a true Christian. Because you can't serve both. I mean, this is not Jared saying this. You can't come up here and argue with me, can you? Argue with Jesus. He's the one that said it. You can't love them both. To the true Christian, you know who Jesus is to a true believer? Jesus said he's the pearl of great price. Remember that parable? The kingdom of heaven is like the pearl of great What did he do? The person found the pearl or found the treasure is the other analogy and did what? Sold everything that they had to get that pearl. That's the cost of discipleship. You're willing to give up anything because there is nothing on this earth that means more to you than Jesus Christ. And if you have a lot of money, or you have a little money. It doesn't matter to you because you're stewards of everything that Christ gave you because He is the pearl of great price. I find it interesting that there's this pearl of great price and then when you go to Revelation 21, you know what you find out? The entrance into the kingdom of heaven is through a giant pearl. The pearly gates. You've heard the pearly gates? It's one pearl. Each gate is one pearl. Isn't that wonderful? Is there anything in this life that's more valuable and more treasured to you than Jesus Christ? He is the treasure. Then I'm going to give you a one more. I'm not going to go any further than that in, in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to go to any other passages. But let, chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. The, the, the other one is love. You know what the Bible says that God is? It doesn't call God this. It's His essence. God is love. And the one who knows Christ has God's love in his heart. So in in chapter 7, we see the fruit of love. And how is it manifested in chapter 7? You don't have a critical spirit. You're not judgmental. You're not always seeing the faux pas of everyone else. You're not walking around offended by being slighted by other people. A Christian doesn't have a critical spirit. Also, you look in here, a Christian is generous because his Father in heaven is generous. We also see something else in here. The the Christian is somebody who strives to do loving deeds. I love the way God puts the church together because people show their love in so many different ways, don't they? Some have the ability to show their love through generous giving. Some show their love to others by serving one another. Some show their love to one another by getting together and praying with one another and, and speaking the truth in each other's lives. Because why? It's, it's a group of, of, of people who love one another. And I can say this, and I've heard this over and over and over. Providence Bible Church is, one, is it, for my experience, is the most loving church I've ever been in my life. I'm telling you, 
the most loving church I've ever seen. It's, it's incredible how much love is in this church. Exactly, it's Christ. Christ is, is coursing through our veins. Is that the right word? Through our veins. Right? And if you don't have that love, it might mean that you don't have Jesus Christ because you love Him preeminently. The great commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, and might. And when you do that, you understand all that. The natural response is then we love our neighbors ourselves. It's wonderful. And so that's a characteristic of, of true assurance. I want to begin to wrap everything up here. Let's wrap this up. Let's turn over to Matthew 25 now. So Matthew 5 to 7 is Jesus' first sermon. Matthew 25 is part of Jesus' last long teaching, and this one was to his disciples. This is what we call the Olivet Discourse. You know what Olivet Discourse means? It basically means he sat on the Mount of Olives and he taught. Discourse means teaching in, in theological terms. Um, and so he was teaching on the Mount of Olives. So you learn something. Olivet is, is, a, is a kind of a Latinization of the term olive, olives. This is during Jesus' Passion Week. And I want you to notice what he says in Matthew 25, beginning in verse number 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since it will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. I want to read that one more time. They went into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now, what is this parable saying? This parable is similar to the wheat and the tares, in that this is a picture of the confessing church. Okay? This is a picture, the ten virgins are those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. They're indistinguishable, for the most part, from everyone else. In the New Testament, the church on the earth is likened to a virgin betrothed to her husband. Did you know that? We're considered a virgin betrothed to Christ. Um, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11:2, listen to the language, for I feel a divine jealousy for, uh, for you, since I betroth you to one husband and to present you as a pure virgin to who? To Christ. See, the church 
right now. We call ourselves the bride of Christ. That's fine and good. It's slightly inaccurate because actually we're the betrothed virgins, betrothed to Jesus Christ at this point. The bridegroom is Jesus Christ. We understand that. The second coming is depicted as a bridegroom coming for his bride. Jesus is coming back. And so when he comes back, we, the church, goes from being betrothed virgins to the bride of the bridegroom for all of eternity. And the Bible likens it to what? A wedding banquet. It's a giant celebration for all of eternity. A wedding banquet. That's what the Bible likens it to. Now, there are five wise virgins who represent those who go into eternity with Christ. But the, 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 those who are the five, but who are the five foolish virgins? Who are those? The five foolish virgins are those who are in some way attached to the church. They were religious, but they did not have salvation. Their heart was never transformed. That, that, that's shown by the fact that they didn't have oil. There was no transformation in their heart. They had a form of godliness, but they had no power behind it. It is religious activity that was mentioned at the beginning of this message. They performed all the religious activity. They looked indistinguishable, attending church, going to Sunday school, participating in all the events. And when Jesus comes back, verse number 10, the door is shut. And they will never, ever enter that door. It's too late when Jesus returns. Verse number 12, Jesus said, I never knew them. In the Bible, to know God, and when God knows someone, it's more than a head knowledge. It always means a relationship. Always, 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 it's a relational knowledge. And Jesus never knew them because they never were in relationship with them. We, we understand this when you go back to Genesis and you see so-and-so knew his wife and what happened? She conceived. It's a consummation of the relationship, right? And so on the day of his return, many will know the facts about Jesus but not know the one who can save. Many have attached themselves to the church. Just like the parable of the wheat and the tares, I've mentioned that several times, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that day, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a picture of eternal condemnation. These are people who were in the church, looked just like everybody else on the surface and had no heart transformation. You can go to um, other places. All kinds of people gather themselves to the church for all different kinds of reasons. The church, maybe going to church will fix my marriage. Uh, I can make good connections for my job there. And it's a good social network. And all kinds of different reasons. But they don't possess eternal life. Jesus alluded to this when he talked about the fish. He said the kingdom of heaven is is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Fish of every kind, meaning the good and the bad, symbolic of the saved and the unsaved. They're in the net. They're, in, they're, they're going to church. 
And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In another wedding analogy, Jesus likens himself to a king who holds a wedding feast. And there's one there who didn't have the offered garment. Apparently, sometimes kings, when they had a wedding feast, maybe the people didn't have the right kind of clothes because they're poor. And the, 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 the king would give them lavish garments to wear for the wedding feast. And the wedding garments offered to the wedding guests are symbolic of true righteousness, of the righteousness of Christ. And when we were saved, we received robes of righteousness. And there was a guest who didn't have the right clothes on. And so he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They were doing all the activities There were no robes of righteousness. There was no true righteousness in their lives, indistinguishable, and they were not going to spend eternity in heaven with God. You say, Pastor, this is almost a little bit depressing. This is so sobering and and, and everything. I'm saying, you know what? That's exactly right. But you know what else? This is how Jesus preached. These are Jesus' words that I'm reading to you. It's a serious matter, eternity. Do you know, beyond a doubt, that you are a Christian? It is literally the most important question that you have to answer in your entire life. Friend, do not be caught on that day without robes of righteousness. Examine yourself. Do you know with biblical certainty that you will be a guest of the bridegroom in eternity? Lord, such a serious message. But this is one that's repeated all through Scripture. From Jesus Christ to the Apostle Paul to Peter to the Apostle John. All said that there are many who attach themselves to the church who are not part of the church and are indistinguishable. Lord, I, I pray that in the grace and the mercy that you have, that you're full of, that you will, with your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, Wake up the hearts that are dead to the fact that they need Jesus Christ so that they may spend eternity glorifying you and praising you for the work of salvation that you have done. In Christ's name, amen.